power on. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Dressed up with nowhere to go, baby. What are you kidding me? You think anything's going to stop the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the Radar R Radio Star? No way. And it is time for that Sovereign Tech, baby. And we have got a jam packed episode to get into, as always. Good thing we go two hours now Woo! <laughs> because there's so much uh, to get into, but uh, some great stories we're going to get into. And I know, I know, especially longtime Sovereign Tech listeners love it when I get into the weird. And we are going to get into a little bit of the weird that is for sure. And then we've uh, got some interesting news out of China in our present uh, climate, shall we say. <laughs> Speaking of climate, holy hell, it was snowing here. I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise on Ice Planet Zero, but really to be snowing in the Silicon Milliard, how about that? But I am all teed up and no, I don't mean golf. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I had some tea. You know, actually, I was reading a tremendous book or, or listening to it. And I think it's an audible original, right? One of these audible originals, uh, by Michael Pollan, um, who is uh, what he did. He did the omnivores dilemma. He's done a few other very interesting books. Uh, it's a short one. It was only a couple hours, uh, about caffeine and I am still processing. Of course, I'll probably need some caffeine to do so, but <laughs> I am still processing, uh, much of what I heard, um, in that it was a, a fascinating exploration and something that I'm sure I will talk about in an upcoming, uh, sovereign tech at some point, because the conversation, well, I think what a lot of us are feeling right now, and certainly we've talked about this quite a bit, but the, the blend of your work life and your home life and how they Again, it's a blend. They're, they're not really separate anymore for most people. Now, me, as I've talked about in recent episodes, you know, it's been that way for me for almost a decade now where, you know, I have not gone off to traditional work. Um, you know, I, I work from home. Uh, I mean, I work my ass off, but I also work from home. In fact, I used to have the moniker of uh, the hardest working man in anarchy. And, uh, you know, that's not one I came up with. That's that's one that I earned. Uh, so <laughs> not to say that hard work is necessarily a virtue, 
but that blend. And, and in fact, um, I am seeing stories now where employers are, you know, supervisors, managers, and so on are requesting to, and basically not just requesting, but ordering that you leave your camera on. They want to make sure that you're at home working. Um, this obviously is not going over well with the whole slew of, of people, particularly in the United States, but you know, it's only a matter of time before varying software like zoom. I mean, zoom already gives employers the tools to see where your attention is at based upon your desktop activity. Okay. On your computer. But there, you know, it, it wouldn't, I don't think it would really be hard for them to implement, you know, even more draconian, uh, uh, things on, on their software. Um, I was actually impressed. I have to admit this. I was having a conversation with uh, a CEO of a pretty major, uh, for lack of a better, I mean, to keep it anonymous, uh, server farm. And they refused to actually use zoom because they said it doesn't meet their security standards. And this was well after zoom had already started implementing a bunch of bullshit. And man, I could get into, I mean, we could have such a conversation around that in the opening here, like, Oh, Alex Stamos is getting involved with, with zoom. It's like, Oh, I, you know, this is a, uh, an honor for me to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, spearheading, you know, the security team for, for them. I'm not doing this for blah, whatever the fuck that guy said that, that guy is so goddamn political. Everything he does is about him eventually becoming some kind of politician or president or who knows what, give me a goddamn break that that doesn't appease me in any way. Um, and I know, I, I mean, Hey, you know, my favorite, uh, uh podcast on the planet besides my own, no, <laughs> my favorite podcast, uh, on the planet user podcast. No, no, not user podcast. Uh, no, my favorite podcast, that being security now, uh, I mean, Steve Gibson has been, you know, applauding zoom's actions right and left, um, on how to, you know, improve security and do it right. Even after you flub, um, and you know, I consider Steve Gibson a hero, uh, but I, I mean, I still think that while they may be shoring up things properly from where they had screwed up, you know, at, at, at zoom, um, eventually they're going to start implementing features that I think are, are going to be a real problem. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. In fact, it's really when netbooks finally became a thing, right? And netbooks were par partly came out of, I mean, there, there was definitely a, 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 a confluence of when you had the, the program, which was, uh, was an OLPC, right? One laptop per child, this program. And we got other stories to get into the foreplay folks, but let's talk about this. You had a one laptop per child and I mean, I'm sure that's turned into smartphones now, but at the time, this was like just before the iPhone uh, struck, you know, in 07, you had uh, like Asus, which I mean, I'm a huge fan of the company. I'm not knocking them here. Actually, I didn't consider, and I, I've said this, I've told this story many times. I didn't consider laptops really viable. And I've had them since I was a kid in the eighties. Right. I mean, I remember the dual disc apples. I mean, the whole thing. Okay. The iBooks. I mean, I was all over it, but I didn't consider a laptop a really viable computer. I still treated them like desktops effectively until Asus came out with the EPC and that's three E's PC. Now, ironically, um, 
you know, there, there would be a lot of derision, uh, especially from the tech giants in Silicon Valley around the concept of the netbook. It, what's so goddamn funny about it is that basically the Microsoft surface line or much of the surface line, and certainly the, the iPad pro, I mean, th- those are netbooks, you know, <laughs> it's just, just Asus was 20 years ahead of the curve or not 2010. Okay. They were just well ahead of the curve. Uh, I thought the, you know, the EPC was, was absolutely brilliant. Now you had that low cost computer, right? Um, I mean, and they were severely underpowered. I mean, you'd look at the specs for them now and it'd be a joke. You only had the little seven inch screen and so on. I mean, and, and, and again, understand at the time, I don't think it appealed to a lot of pros, you know, or like a power users, I should say, I don't think it appealed to a lot of power users because they thought, oh, seven inch screen that that's not enough for me. God damn it. I need my, I need my 18 and a half inch, you know, whatever. Now, I mean, you know, people live their entire lives on screens smaller than seven inches. And once again, Asus was well ahead of the curve. But when those became a thing and, you know, and then laptops also started having webcams built into them. um, This was, you know, this played nicely with this concept of OLPC of one laptop per child and schools at that time. This is just before Chromebooks were even an idea. Schools at that time started handing out these very inexpensive uh, netbooks, really. And it was found out at the time, and we've talked about this story many times, uh, that that supervisors, superintendents, whatever, you know, people, I guess it wouldn't be supervisors. I mean, you know, <laughs> a white collar is a white collar, but superintendents, principals for the school systems were literally spying on those kids. Now, any way you slice that, any, any argument you possibly, I mean, it's deplorable. There, there, there is no good excuse. There's no excuse for, for, for that. I mean, that's just disgusting, quite frankly. And at the time, again, we're talking 2007, 2008, which I guess humanity as a whole or civilization, I should say, uh, amazingly had a little more rationality. Um, you know, the, the, everybody flipped out, said, holy shit, what the, you're not going to, f- fuck you. You're not doing that. I mean, I think the superintendent got fired. I mean, it was, it was a fiasco and rightfully so, but now, Oh no, no. Yes. Everybody leave your cameras on. No, we want to see everything. You better have a good angle and all it's outrageous. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. And uh, I, I, I could go on and on about this. Um, I mean, myself, you know, (laughs) in fact, I've even heard from, uh, from, from, you know, students, even outside of high school, you know, like college students that it seems like uh, other students are just like, yeah, no, like the camera's on. That's fine. Blah, blah, blah. That's like, wait, what? No, that's, that's, that's not fine. Uh, at all. You know, I mean, when the fucking head of the FBI tells the people of America that he and you should put a piece of tape over your webcam. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a good idea. You know, (laughs) when 
when even the guy engaging in the surveillance society is telling you, you should do that. Now, of course, why would he do that? What, what is the self-interest there? Because don't they want to spy on you? Yes, of course they do. Uh, but why would he say that? It's because they're probably sweating that China's spying on you, right? <laughs> through, through those very EPCs, the Chinese government, of course, but whatever. Okay. That, that we don't even have to, you know, that, that part of the conversation doesn't even have to go there, but what the fuck happened? that people suddenly think that this is okay. You know, it's funny. Um, in fact, I, I talked about this at the end of the last episode of Sovereign Tech. I'm not going to do this full review here. I am going, it might be the next episode because I really want to take my time with this. I really want to get a feel for it. Okay. Um, I've recently been messing around with a, a latest gen iOS device that's running the latest version of iOS. We'll be running the latest version of iOS for quite some time. Um, and that is, of course, the the 2019, the seventh generation um, iPod Touch. This is, again, one of the latest and most advanced devices that, that Apple sells. Okay, even though clearly talk about something that's marketed, marketed for kids, it is, and that's part of the point. Okay, so I'll give you a little bit of a preview, kind of like last week, I gave you a little bit of a preview on this. And then we are going to get into our, our, our little stories for, uh, for the foreplay, where we cover all the little news. But this is important to get into. Um, the one thing I do love about this and that I, I only have positive things to say is uh, the hardware and the feature set of the hardware overall. In fact, frankly, it's quite limited and I could understand why. Um, so this does not have a fingerprint reader. There's, there's, n there's no biometrics here at all. Um, it, I don't even think it has a, a light sensor for automatic brightness. Um, there's, there is an, an extreme lack of sensors on this thing. It only has one lens for the camera, <gasps> but how can I get a great picture for the NSA? I know, I know, you know, but you could probably still get a pretty good shot and share it on Instagram. And then, you know, everybody's got it. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there is an absolute lack of sensors on this fucking thing. And, and also of, you know, again, no biometrics, none of that stuff. Um, the, the cameras, I mean, it's actually pretty easy to cover these up, uh, by comparison to a lot of Android phones. I will, I will give it that. Uh, but you know, it's, it's very, it, it feels very locked down. It doesn't have the amount of options, you know, face ID and then 3d touch and all this other horse shit, uh, all of which really, you know, tracks a lot of your motions all the better. Um, you know, it's, it's not there. And I applaud Apple for that because you know, this is, you're making a, you know, just by its very nature, a more private and secure device than what the average person, uh, you know, the fondle slab, the, the box of sensors that they carry around in their back pocket. Now I ask you this though, digitally, why should the adults level of security, you know, if our children's level of security on their devices is incredibly high and you're concerned and you're thinking twice, Oh, you know, what, what are my kids doing online? Blah, 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 blah. And all this. Why don't we think the same way about our own as adults? I think we should. <laughs> I think we should take it just as seriously. And that's my point, you know, with, with bringing this up is that the things that somehow like, would you, and, and I bet if I asked people today and I said, Hey, you know, really like, are you, are you okay with, um, you know, with, with teachers or whoever else, uh, you know, having cameras on your children 24 seven or 
potentially having access to it or being able to order them to turn their camera on whenever it's necessary, blah, blah, blah. Are you all right with all that? I mean, it doesn't even have to be 24 seven, even if it is, you know, six to eight hours out of the day or something like that. I bet you'd probably as a parent, I would assume you'd still feel a little squeamish about the affair. So why as an adult, would it be any fucking different? Because the concept is the same that you don't want somebody spying on you. You don't want somebody being a perv and what, how many workplace nightmares do we have to learn about? Do we have to hear about every fucking day to know that adults can be just as bad between adults? Whatever. Have a good time, you know? And, and I mean, cause look folks, you can raise a stink. Okay. I mean, you, you really can. And you know, I, I can't seem to convince people to, you know, spend even less time on social media. So if you're going to be on social media, so fucking hardcore, then make a fucking stink over the, over this whole situation. Whenever your employer says, Hey, they want to spy on me for this, blah, 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 blah. I mean, just, just, just say no, God damn it. I mean, you can be nice about it if you're worried about getting fired. And certainly I can empathize with that and, you know, and appreciate, you know, that you don't want that to happen to you. But, uh, I mean, HR departments should be lit up over this. You know, that this is an absolute invasion uh, of your home and privacy. But no, most people will probably just lay down and let Zoom watch them lay down. Way to go. Anyway, uh, <laughs> a company that, that seems, or an organization, I should say, because they're 501c3, right? I think, nonprofit, um, that at least pretends to, uh, to, to give a shit about your privacy, uh, Firefox, let's, let, let's change up the conversation here. Uh, Firefox 76 just recently came out. Not a whole lot to talk about as far as feature set goes. Uh, in fact, I'm a little annoyed because was in Firefox 75, they changed the address bar and you know, you can't get people to complain about the fact that, well, you know, employers want to, employers want to keep, uh, your, the, you know, cameras on, on you at all times. Okay. You won't complain about that, but holy shit. If there is just too much shadow in the address bar on Firefox, you know, I mean, go, go, go attack city hall. <laughs> it's just so, the priorities, the priorities. This is such a, you know, this whole thing with COVID-19 is such a learning experience to see where people's heads are really at and, and hot damn, I'm, I'm worried that they're not learning anything. In fact, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a second during the foreplay, but let's keep going. So fire anyway, Firefox 76, I guess they, 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 they did a little bit better about that drop shadow in the address bar. So I hope you feel better. Fucking a, uh, not a whole lot to talk about as far as feature set goes. It does appear. I only bring it up because they are adding in more features to the, uh, the app suite that they are trying to build around Firefox, right? Uh, like you have Lockwise, you have uh, their VPN, um, you know, you have all these different things that, and you have send and, and all this different shit that they're, they're, you know, that they're rolling out um, or spinning out of Firefox as kind of separate services and apps, but that really all play within Firefox. And this kind of proves the point. Um, so like Firefox, uh, like uh, Lockwise, I want to call it Lockwise. Likewise, but Lockwise, which is a password manager that's built into Firefox anyway, it's a separate app whenever you mess with it on your you know mobile device. Um, but they baked into where it can now notify you, which they already had this with Firefox Monitor. But now, Lockwise, when you're going to put in your password 
for a specific site will alert you if there has been a, if there's been a breach um, at that site. That's a nice combination of what monitor and lockwise do. I, I mean, I, I, I think that that works. Um, also they, uh, beefed up their past the automatic password generator that comes along with lockwise. So basically these improvements are more to the, again, these, they're not really separate, but these separate apps around being built around Firefox right now. And I think all of this leads to more of that value add because I still think within 2020, Uh, I mean, maybe COVID-19 backed this up a little bit, but I don't imagine it did too much uh, that there will, you know, Mozilla will announce that they're going to have the premium version um, of Firefox. Uh, I've got to tell you, I mean, I'll add this in here. Uh, I was testing out and I know it's in beta and it's early, you know, it's fairly early, um, but Firefox VPN. While it's nice that it uses WireGuard, um, I ran into a couple issues when I wanted to stop using it. One of them was, and and this had to do with particularly with a a windows machine. Now we know, and we've talked about this, we haven't done a full breakdown on WireGuard, but that needs to happen. I'll explain more why it does, Uh, but it's baked into the Linux kernel now. Right. And that's, that's a huge deal. And it is okay. With windows doesn't exactly play as nicely. Um, so what, what ended up happening was, cause I, I have, I mean, my main uh, VPN that I use is private internet access, which I've recommended across the board on this show for years. It's been my top pick for a very, very long time. And I wanted to switch back to that. Okay. Because or part of what was happening with the windows machine that I was messing with is that with Firefox VPN on it, for some reason, when you'd go to the windows store, to do updates, like it actually prevented the windows store from doing its business. So somehow it was blocking out the windows store from allowing you to get other apps for one. And then for two to even update those apps, which I needed to update Skype. In fact, I found out it was creating all kinds of problems with Skype. Uh, what is it blocking that Microsoft's doing? Great question. We don't know, but that was a problem. And then when I went to, uh, to uninstall Firefox VPN and use and switch to private internet access, uh, it actually changed. It didn't allow the network connection for open VPN and it locked it into WireGuard, And that created a huge issue where now the issue was eventually resolved. You know, I, I didn't take the time to really resolve it because I don't spend that much time in windows machine anyway, but what ended up happening was this now, <laughs> not uninterestingly. And again, it's something totally with Firefox VPN because private internet access is now using WireGuard. Um, and, and so, you know, I use private internet access and it, it went perfectly. And I go to, you know, the Microsoft store, there's no issues. Um, so it was something totally to do with Firefox VPN. Uh, so if you're a windows user, you might want to hold off on, on rocking that, uh, because they just, I don't know. And, and also, and granted, you know, the internet is uh, taking a pretty good hit because of all those fucking zoom users. No, uh, it's taking a pretty good hit as far as speeds go. Um, and VPNs in general, we've known that there, there's been like a major slowdown uh, with them. Firefox VPN just has too few uh, uh, servers to access. And I mean, the, the speeds that I were, that I was getting uh, just not acceptable. It really was not working well and it created varying issues. Um, so it's just not there yet. Okay. That's what, I mean, what I saw, I liked, 
But, and when it becomes part of a premium service that could become an entire privacy and security suite that Mozilla is going to offer probably later this year, or I would assume in 2021, I still think they're going to do it. Uh, I mean, they've hinted at it and we've talked about it. I still think it's going to happen. Um, yeah, Firefox VPN is just not there yet. Uh, I mean, I've, I've just run into too many issues like that. Where it did work great actually was on a Chromebook. I'll, I'll give it that. It worked really, really well there. Um, but anyway, so Firefox 76 is out there. Go ahead and uh, update to it, but it really doesn't add anything special unless you're baking, unless you're buying into Mozilla's entire suite now that they're building uh, around Firefox. But, you know, speaking of the world switching over to Linux, which has been a conversation, in fact, following up from uh, last last week's episode, Lenovo came out, and I, and I was surprised by this. Uh, but Lenovo has announced that they are going to be offering uh, where you can buy, I mean, they're, you know, they've, they've offered developer models for a while. Dell does this as well. In fact, Dell will sell you uh, developer models of their, even like their XPS 13, very popular computer, uh, popular laptop where it'll come with Ubuntu stock. Uh, now Lenovo is offering ThinkPads that come with Fedora pre-installed. Uh, Fedora workstation, which is basically the desktop version of Fedora now, because you have like three different versions of Fedora. I thought this was so cool. I I've never really seen where a major manufacturer has really jumped on, uh, you know, Fedora particularly getting installed. Like I said, Ubuntu, you know, it, it, it's been there for, for some, particularly like with Dell, but Fedora, that's, that's very interesting. Now, it's not surprising though, particularly the models they're going to offer it for is the ThinkPad P1, the P53 and the X1, which is the X1 Carbon's kind of their, their flagship. Uh, those are all flagships, but anyway, to have them on their ThinkPads, not surprising. Why? So I actually, I used Fedora for a really, really long time. That was my mainstay operating system. Like if I was tossing a laptop into, into a bag for probably a, a good five, six years, the laptop I would toss in would have Fedora running on it. And this is back when Fedora had, you know, more of the numbering system and it, you know, wasn't called workstation at the, at the time. Um, and of course, you know, Linus uh, uh, Torvalds, he was a huge supporter of Fedora for a long time, but that's because it, it supported the power PC architecture for a very long time. But anyway, Fedora, the reason I got into it, was partly because it's what my father had to use um, because Fedora is heavily used by NASA. And again, now if you, if you ever get pictures of any laptops or anything in space, they're almost always ThinkPads. Sorry, Apple. They're almost always ThinkPads. And <laughs> those ThinkPads are generally running, uh, you know, some spin of Fedora. Um, and so for Lenovo to offer that, you know, on a broader scale, not surprising because they've been tailoring their hardware to run Fedora for a long time anyway, uh, particularly in scientific fields, as well as, I mean, again, you know, NASA themselves. Uh, so I, I, this isn't surprising that they would do that, but it does point at, holy shit, you know, we were talking about in last episode, uh, was that episode 372, that you wow, you know, this groundswell happening around Linux right now is getting insane. Well, I think this is just another piece of that puzzle and I couldn't be fucking happier. Uh, especially, I mean, do I, do I recommend the average person jump on Fedora? No, not, not really be, you know, and I, and I recommend Ubuntu pretty much across the board, but 
it's nice to have the option out there pre-installed right from, uh, you know, right from the manufacturer. I thought, I think that's a nice move and a nice vote of confidence for the fact that yeah, windows 10 is dying and Linux is on the way. And I guess we'll end off the, the foreplay with a couple of little stories here or kind of a, well, a story and a theory. So, uh, this is, I mean, just interesting news, of course, uh, also something that longtime listeners of sovereign tech know, I am a huge fan of, uh, Kindle e-reader hardware. And I mean, I've had one forever. Uh, I always, or, well, I didn't get the latest Kindle Oasis. I didn't get the 10th generation. I had the ninth generation, but that's because they didn't do anything like <laughs> there was, there was a huge difference between the, uh, first Kindle Oasis and the second one which the numbering system around these is ridiculous. But anyway, but the third model, which came out recently, not, not a huge difference uh, between the two. In fact, really I I'm to the point, I would love a paper white because the way you have to hold the Oasis, it, it gets tiresome, but, and, and, and it's, it's a little heavy in comparison to the full plastic because the Oasis has the, and you know, the fourth generation paper white, you know, that has waterproofing and that has 32 gig built into it now too. And it can do audible books and everything. So there's no real reason to spend $300 on a, uh, on an Oasis. But anyway, I'm a big fan of this hardware. And I, I mean, I read from this thing. I mean, I'm, I'm such a voracious reader. I read from it all the time. It, it's really a wonderful thing. And I mean, having the audible feature is, is really, really slick. Uh, but they started putting into the, I mean, and you got to understand how obsessed I am around Kindles. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I, on, on a daily basis, I go to the Kindle software update page to see if there's a new, if there's a new update and none of these updates really do anything dramatic, except for what I'm about to tell you about. They usually don't do anything too dramatic, but I, I'm just like, I'm just obsessed and I'm so fucking in love with this device. <laughs> that it's a library in your pocket. Um, you know, that, that I, I just, I can't wait. So this, the latest version of, uh, of Kindle software for their e-readers is 5.12 or 5.12.5. And you don't need that to get this, but now they have a, a dark mode that they must've, it must've just been a, a server switch that they hit, but they have a dark mode available now, even on the e-readers. So it switches everything around, you know, to, to that, to black pretty much on the e-reader. This is really, really nice, especially with PDFs. Uh, it's nice with the UI as well. I, I love it. I, I mean, you know, dark mode shouldn't really be news, but this is dark mode on an entire different, really a hardware category than on, you know, just a simple smartphone app. Um, so you can't really, you know, even if you installed the latest software on a Kindle e-reader, that's not guaranteed to make it happen. Um, but it's only available on the, uh, second generation Oasis, which is called the ninth generation for whatever reason. And the third generation Oasis and on the fourth generation, uh, Kindle paperwhite, uh, probably needs the extra processing power that all of those came with, you know, to really like make it work well, because I mean, that's a lot of movement of the dots, if you know what I mean. Uh, but a nice little feature. So anyway, check that out if you haven't. Um, all right. I, I had one more thing I want to get into, but I'll save it for HackSec because it'll be relevant in that conversation. I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Babylon 5 ended a great war and united a hundred alien races in peace. 
Danger didn't die. It just went underground with new heroes and new evils to carry the torch. We need to make sure they all understand we will not be intimidated. What is wrong with you people? We have to set him against himself. It's an entire new season of Babylon 5 with all new episodes. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. The main story. It is time for the main story where, well, there's one big story. In fact, sometimes these stories are sent in from Sovereign Tech listeners or from members of the Sovereign Tech team. In this case, the the love of my life, Ellen Sovereign, uh, she actually sent this to me and I looked at it. And amazingly, this story is not like entirely new. I think the story is from almost a year ago or no, it's from September 19th, 2019. So a few months ago. And I, and I saw it and I was like, wait, wait, what, <laughs> you know, she shared it with me on telegram and I was like, holy shit. Uh, anyway, so I, I was so blown away. Yeah. I mean, we, we got to talk about it, but this is definitely a situation where, as we say, we are getting into the weird. Um, and, but again, it's by request. So, Hey, all right, I'm here for you. The golden stallion is here for you. I want to entertain you and in doing so, hopefully inform you just a bit. Maybe I should have those in reverse, but regardless, here we go. Uh, and it's from his history.com, which should be changed to maybe hysterical.com, but no, you know, sometimes they, 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 they publish, you know, hard or, you know, I don't want to say hard nose journalism or anything like that, but, uh, sometimes they can be taken seriously. Right. I mean, history, the history channel has, which history.com is, you know, the front for, um, has definitely, and we've talked about this many times, has certainly fallen from grace over the past 10 years. Uh, what used to be a, you know, talk about really hard nose and very serious. Uh, you know, it's, it's turned into total, you know, talk about entertaining more than informing. I mean, they, they are the Kings of that, but regardless, this is a very real story and very interesting. I can understand why they talk about it. And when I mention it, you will find out why, but there's things within it, which, uh, to discuss again from, uh, from September 23rd, 2019, uh, it's Navy confirms UFO videos are real and show unidentified aerial phenomenon. Um, and it, let's see, it was in history series unidentified that the active duty Navy pilots who encountered the crafts first came forward to share their stories. So obviously they're promoting history channels, promoting their own shit with this, that being unidentified and probably ancient aliens and emphasis on the word shit, but <laughs> let's talk about it. What's, what's the deal here? You know, for, for the Navy to confirm UFO videos are real. Hmm. Let's read it. Uh, it's by Becky little, the U S Navy has confirmed that three F 18, uh, gun camera videos first released by the New York times and a UFO research organization, sh- uh, or, and a UFO research organization show quote, unidentified aerial phenomena end quote, or UAPs, a more formal term for UFOs that doesn't have all the little green men baggage. Now let's stop on this for a second. This is. I actually appreciate this. Okay. I mean, fuck the U S Navy, <laughs> but, 
but I appreciate kind of this clarification of, of terms. There are terms that either need to go away because they do have so much baggage or equally, perhaps there are terms that should not be considered so ridiculous because they are about as accurate a term as we could possibly come up with. Now the term UFO, I mean, I, I think that's, that's frankly a lost cause and, you know, greater precision in language, whether in like more precise terms or more precise, even philosophy around language. I, I mean, I am a, a huge proponent of engaging in this. Okay. I mean, I, I really, and, and I think as I've said often on the show, uh, there are entire parts, aspects of the human condition and the human experience that we don't have words for yet. And that I think it's a problem that we don't have words, um, for these things, uh, yet. I mean, and, and just as an example, and it's an extreme example, but it is an example. I, I mean, the term rape, right. Is a fairly new term. Okay. And, but without it, without having a term that describes a certain action that's going on, uh, it, in many ways, I think in people's minds, it normalized, uh, the action to some degree because, or, you know, I mean, there's lots of words like this that are more recent and they were created to describe an action being taken against or by a person. Right. Um, so that it's an important thing to engage in and, you know, getting away from, and this is the first I had really heard of this term. Okay. But getting away from UFO, because like I said, that's really a lost cause. I mean, that can mean so many different things. It's not very, it's not very precise. And instead saying unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs to describe this, um, I'll admit, I like that. I mean, and coming from a guy who doesn't think aliens have ever been to earth, certainly not from out of our solar system. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I can appreciate that because a lot of, you know, the, and I do think that there's cases beyond this and I, I want to read more of the story. I do think that there are cases beyond this where there has been something that would be qualified as a UAP that, um, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't a, a hoax or a trick of some kind. Now, usually I attributed that attribute them to some kind of, you know, government project, right? Uh, ironically, the government or the Senate, or let's, I should say Congress's official statement on a lot of this, when they were researching it in the seventies is that it's the demonic. I'm not kidding. That's, that's, that's what their own researchers came to the conclusion of. I'm not going there and I'm not going with aliens, but calling it UAP. Yeah. I, I like that. Uh, particularly because it's not, well, the reason I say that is because I think there's other terms when we are having discussions about the idea of what normally gets called alien life. I think there are different terms we can use that allow us to have a conversation with more precision and also can help cut off at the pass people who might just want to laugh it off, you know, saying, Oh, little green men and what? No, no, you know, don't, don't do that. And I mean, and look again, as a guy who doesn't think that aliens from outside of our solar system, you know, to, to use that term, to use a colloquialism, uh, you know, have ever been to earth. I don't, you know, I don't dismiss, out of hand when someone is having an actually intelligent conversation around the idea of life in the stars, right. Or life from the stars. So there are other terms that can be used. One that I really, I mean, extraterrestrial, look, this is as good and as scientifically precise a fucking term as you can have. 
it's a fine term. We should never, like, I mean, like, well, we get into arguments about should and never, but I would argue that using the term aliens doesn't help shit. Okay. For anything using the term ETs or extraterrestrial is the scientifically accurate way to go. Again, coming from a guy who doesn't believe in this or, you know, doesn't, doesn't follow much of this crowd in the first place, but I think that's the way to go. And you even have what's called. So, you know, this concept of where say UA, uh, UAPs now, right. Or perhaps they have come to earth and they are what would normally be called aliens. Now you can have a conversation around UAPs within a hypothesis. And what that gets called is ETH right? Which is the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And that's more of that precision. Now, some people want to talk about that. Actually, you know, these, these aliens, they're not really ETs. They're actually from another dimension, right? And, and this gets into what's what gets called the interdimensional hypothesis, right? IDH or IH. And the more we can, you know, again, have these terms of precision, and that's not the only one. But the more we can have these terms of precision, the better off we are. And this is kind of the main takeaway really from the story, but I'm going to read more about it and we'll talk about it. Uh, the other possibility, and this does, it, there doesn't just have to be three. The other possibility is that if it is some kind of life that is not human, right? That is causing these UAPs that we're about to discuss. The other possibility is what is known as a crypto terrestrial. Okay. And that you could get it with that. You could have a CTH right? Which would be the crypto terrestrial hypothesis, which the crypto terrestrial hypothesis is something that was, there was a boy, he died really young too, uh, but a great science fiction author that being, uh, and he was young, but he, you know, tremendous. Like he has a short story compilation came out with the nineties, which was brilliant. Uh, Mac Tunney's who, you know, he was big on, in fact, he even wrote the book on crypto terrestrials, uh, in the early aughts, which was the idea that there are other sapient forms of life that co-evolved on, you know, on earth with humans that are still perhaps still around and we just don't know it. And that's a very interesting concept. And one that I am not opposed to at all. Okay. Now are we going to get into lizards? Well, you see, when you say lizard, suddenly then it's lizard Jews and you, you get more of this problem of the, the package deal, right? Which is, which is a logical fallacy. And so I think using more precise terms is really, really helpful and changing up some of the language around what has turned into a lot of pop culture baggage or really a package deal uh, is incredibly helpful. So in fact, some of this I'm going to get into in uh, in a future user podcast, but regardless, let's keep going with this. So when I say ETH or IDH or even CTH, those are very specific terms referencing different possibilities of perhaps, again, if these things are not, you know, of human origin, what they could be. But when you say IDH, it doesn't mean that they're not necessarily on earth. They might just be accessing from, uh, I don't know, a different dimension or something like that, getting an end theory or whatever. I'm not terribly hot on that, but okay. Then you have, you know, ETH, which is the extraterrestrial hypothesis is, and they came from the stars. Uh, or then you have the, you know, CTH again, crypto terrestrial hypothesis, which is the idea that no, there's just other life that actually evolved on earth and we just don't know about them. Um, and I think that's where things do get interesting, but all of that said, so there you have some framework for where I'm coming from with a lot of this. Let's read on with the history channel or with history.com story. The times, 
originally released again, that's the New York times originally released two of the videos in a December, 2017 article revealing that the Pentagon had operated a secret UFO investigatory project called the advanced aerospace threat identification program or AATIP. All three videos were published on the website of to the stars Academy of arts and sciences, a UFO research organization founded by former blink 182 singer and guitarist Tom DeLonge. Now, a couple of quick bits on this. We did talk about when that was revealed about uh, the AATIP. We talked about that on Sovereign Tech. And it was, uh, you know, the funny thing about that was, is that, you know, the original program that was keeping an eye, which were labeled at the time UFOs, you know, Project Blue Book, right? That was closed off basically in the 70s. Okay. And so everybody thought that the case was closed on UFOs or what we would now call UAPs. And when it was found out about this genuinely secret government program, AATIP, that was still investigating UAPs, what was scandalous about it was, it's like, wait, wait, wait. We thought the story was closed. We thought, no, it's all bullshit. You know, like these things are, everything's a hoax. None of it's legit, blah, 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 whatever. Even though Project Blue Book itself, you know, within its own declassified document states that some of these things, yeah, they just can't explain. So that it was, it was scandalous when that happened. And the other thing, okay, I can't stand blink 182. I, you know, I hear their music and, and you know, I, I just grab a, I grab a space tech pen here and I just want to jam it right into my ear until it stops. Um, But you know what you fans of blink 182, I actually applaud you or really I'm applauding Tom DeLonge for taking that fame and fortune and doing something fucking useful with it. Besides putting a, a golden duck in a fountain in front of his fucking mansion. Maybe he still did that. I don't know, but at least he did something useful and worthwhile looking into these things. Cause I, I do think it is worthwhile. Even if, again, I don't think that aliens from, uh, or, you know, uh, even if I don't buy into ETH right into the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but let's keep going. Um, the news that the Navy considers the three videos unofficially known as FLIR one gimbal and go fast as examples of UAPs first appeared on the black vault website that specializes, blah, 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 blah. Um, anyway, they're from 2014 and 2015 and, and, and so on. Um, Joseph, uh, Gratisher, official spokesperson for the deputy chief of Naval operations for information warfare emphasized to history that these videos represent only represent only some of the UAP sightings. The Navy is investigating quote, those three videos are just part of a larger effort by the U S Navy to try and investigate a series of incursions into our training ranges by phenomena that we're calling unidentified aerial phenomena says Gratisher, who declined to say how many sightings there have been quote, our aviators train as they fight. So when they're out there training, if there's an incursion of by any kind of aerial vehicle phenomenon, whatever, it puts the safety of our aviators at risk as well as the security of our training operations. End quote. To be clear, the Navy is not, is not saying that these videos show evidence of alien life. Rather, the Navy is saying it can't identify the phenomena in the videos. The Navy considers UAPs like these a national security and safety problem because they are not authorized to be in U.S. airspace. After a series of classified briefings featuring Navy pilots and lawmakers this summer, the Navy announced it had formalized its process for pilots and other personnel to report UAPs so that records of these sightings are more consistent and therefore easier to investigate. 
Radisher told History the Navy is trying to reduce the stigma of reporting UAPs, which in the past pilots have been disparaged or ignored for reporting. Uh, quote, we want to go beyond that stigma and encourage our aviators to report anything that they're seeing out there, end quote. Uh, anyway, then whatever they talk about their, their history series. Now I want to talk about this for a second. This is part of that importance of refining or even changing the language around this, around the situation to get rid of the baggage. It's like, no, we're you're, you're listing off, not a UFO, not little green men. You're listing off a UAP and we need to know about it. This is somewhat of a big deal in my opinion, because, uh, you know, when you go online, you can go to YouTube, you can go to Google images, whatever, go on Twitter, take your pick, whatever cesspool of the internet, you know, that's kind of an oxymoron. The internet is a cesspool in itself. Um, whenever you go to the cesspool of the internet, <laughs> I should say the World Wide web is a cesspool. Um, I think IRC is great, but whenever, which that's different from the World Wide web, it's the internet still, but that's a different protocol, right? Okay. Um, you can go anywhere and you're going to find them, you know, so many people reporting on, Oh, I saw this and I saw this light in the sky and blah, blah, blah. And we take it and not, not, I mean, and look, as somebody who I was in the U S army, okay. For some years, and I am aware of the process of what it goes through to report on something that uh, you find even remotely fishy, whether in a training exercise or, you know, right on the field. And you believe me, you've got to report. I mean, you, you have to have info for it to be taken seriously. Okay. Yes. They want you to report it, but you got to go there with something that is more substantial than what the everyday person on the internet is telling you. Yes. I had this angelic experience or, Oh, I saw these three lights in the sky or blah, blah, blah. You got to have something a little bit more. All right. And I appreciate that. Fuck the military, but I appreciate that this, you know, in a time I'm saying all this because we live in a time where you cannot believe what you're, whatever you see on a screen, you really can't take as matter of fact, whatever you hear through speakers, you cannot take as matter of fact that it's coming from the source. Okay. Or that it's, it's like objectively real. And so to have some kind of filter and to find out that, well, shit, no, there are, you know, uh, uh, unexplained, unidentified, shall we say, phenomena or unidentified aerial phenomena in this case, to this day is an interesting factoid on its own to know about. And that even though uh, the what double A tip there, AATIP, even though that shut down years ago, the investigation has basically continued into this and it's being taken very seriously and it's still occurring because I think a lot of people effectively just want to come out and say, it's like, well, you know, everything's a hoax now because they know what I know. Of course, they don't apply it much further than uh, the length of their arms, sadly, but they know what I know and what we've talked about in Sovereign Tech many times that I mean, from deep fakes to Photoshop, to take your fucking pick, uh, to Adobe being able to, you know, say, make you say anything or sounds like you're saying anything just by recording your voice for 15 seconds. Uh, you know, what can you possibly believe right now? Now I'm not saying you can believe the Navy, but at the very least 
there, there is evidence that they are being presented with video from varying, uh, you know, monitoring footage of any kind that, okay, no, there's something there and, and we're not just going to write it off. Now, is it aliens? My opinion, or, you know, is it, uh, 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 is it ETH, right? Is it extraterrestrials? No, <laughs> no, but let's read from the pilots themselves. And then we're, we'll, well, anyway, Nick Pope uh, chimes in here, which what a surprise. Uh, it was during the production reading on, it was during the production of history series, unidentified inside America's UFO investigation. The first season of which explored UAP phenomena, uh, in wait, that that's <laughs> You can't explore UAP phenomena because the P in UAP phenomena is already phenomena. All right, whatever. Uh, <laughs> which explored UAP phenomena in military context that the active duty Navy pilots who encountered the crafts captured in the three videos initially came forward to share their stories. The series in partnership with to the stars Academy helped spark a dialogue that resulted in official acknowledgement of these crafts. Nick Pope, who worked for the UK Ministry of Defense UFO uh, program from 91 to 94, has previously speculated that there are four possible explanations for the more recent UAPs identified by the U.S. Navy. Errors in pilot or computer perception. It's a good one to bring up. Uh, a secret U.S. project being blind tested without the Navy's knowledge. Entirely possible. Number three, uh, a foreign government's aircraft or something completely unknown. Now, the first three in Nick Pope's list, well, actually, let me read here from Nick Pope. Quote, what I think the Navy's recent statement does is it probably takes off the table the first of those explanations, he says. I think the clear perception is the Navy thinks we're dealing with something real and tangible here. So not misidentifications, misperceptions, glitches, or such, end quote. Um, so, yeah, okay, so the first one's off the table. Number two and number three out of those four you know, the idea that maybe it's foreign aircraft or that it's a secret U.S. project, that's generally where I fall in line with these sorts of things. Now, you can watch uh, some of the videos. You actually, you can watch all three videos and you can see the phenomenon. And I mean, it doesn't look like much, but then the average person doesn't understand usually what radar uh, as well as monitoring equipment on a jet fighter you know, what that usually looks like. It's not like the view screen on Star Trek where you can perfectly see whatever the fuck is out there. Okay. And so that leads partly to the problem of it not being able to be identified, but that's also, you know, trained, uh, trained service people know exactly what they're, or have an idea of what's not normal when they're looking at that kind of footage. So it might not look like much to you, but to them, Holy shit. And even to me, I can look at it and I have some familiarity with it and I go, wow. Yeah. What the hell was that? So I'll read a little, there's just a little bit more to the story. I want to get into that and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll break it down a little more. The history of us government interest in UFOs. Uh, the U S military has actually been interested in UFOs for a long time, going back to 1948 with the U S air force project sign the year before a businessman named Kenneth Arnold had claimed that while flying a plane near Mount Rainier in Washington state, he'd spied nine crescent shaped objects speeding along like saucers skipping on water. Newspaper accounts that mixed up his words helped popularize the term flying saucer. Reports of this uh, sighting led more people to claim they'd seen UFOs and the Air Force decided to study these claims. In the Cold War context, the military was eager to know whether the growing numbers of reports about supposed flying saucers might actually be some kind of advanced Soviet spy crafts. Now, to talk about that for a second. In Russia, they, I mean, they're doing, and to this day, they're still doing the same thing. But I guess in America, when you hear about 
you know, Russian reports of UAPs, people just, I guess you do, you just think the Russians are ridiculous or something. And, and I don't just mean the Russian government. Apparently you think every Russian in the world is, is, is ridiculous, which blows my mind, but okay. Their research into this type of phenomena is still very common and also never really stopped. Okay. And in fact, they have, <laughs> they don't just have unidentified aerial phenomena. They have spatial phenomenon as in, in outer space that, you know, uh, well, I guess maybe since the Soviet union, uh, fell, some of that's been declassified, but from their own space probes, particularly around Mars. And we're not talking about the face on Mars. No, 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 no. We're talking about like crazy shit that looks like it's coming out of the moon of Phobos. I mean, really the, the, these pictures are absolutely insane when, when you look at them. Okay. I bring this up to suggest that there are lots of organizations around the world that take this very seriously, not just the U S Navy. Okay. That there are UAPs. Now, a lot of people want to actually point at what I just read about. Okay. Where you where Kenneth Arnold, you know, uh, said he saw the, the crescent shaped objects, right. Uh, back in, let's see, what was it? 47 or so. That somehow, oh yeah, once somebody says they saw it, then everybody comes out of the woodwork and starts saying, oh yeah, I've seen him too. Oh, I've seen him too, you know, because it makes press and people want their 15 minutes of fame and so on. It's important to keep in mind that the idea of UAPs, we'll use that, that word, that, that word retroactively, have been around for centuries, if not thousands of years. Okay. It's not just something that's only been reported on since 1947. Okay. Also in America, it's not something that's just been reported on since 1947. There have been us presidents and I don't mean, you know, Jimmy Carter, there have been us presidents who have claimed to have seen UAPs in the past. Um, I mean, well before 1947, there's a, I mean, and, and also at times where, you know, the idea of, of, aerial craft, you know, aircraft of any kind largely shouldn't have been possible. And I've brought this point up before, but I'll bring it up again. You've got to understand that especially, you know, hundreds of years ago, say like in Europe. Okay. Now the, the, the power that the power that be, because <laughs> it was singular uh, or the power that was in Europe at the time. Okay. Was very much the Catholic church. I mean, you had rebellions against it in Britain and so on, but the Catholic church was really, I mean, you know, you had, if you saw something that you felt was supernatural, like perhaps a UFO or UAP, right. That at the time, maybe that's what people would claim because it's something in the sky, right? You didn't just say that shit willy nilly. Okay. Just like with the Navy. You wouldn't just say this shit willy nilly. No, you have to have some fucking evidence to back up what you're saying. Because if you went around claiming this and this and this, I mean, you had a good chance of your head getting lobbed off by the inquisition or who knows what for, for claiming anything like that. I mean, there's a classic story of Christopher Columbus claiming to have seen lights coming out of the ocean. Um, you know, when he was, uh, you know, coming to, to what would be the Americas and, uh, you know, they, they had a sit down with him. When he got back and said, what is this? You say you're seeing a menorah come out of the, you know, and they immediately attributed it to, to 
Judaism, you know, to some kind of something that they considered evil. I'm not saying Judaism is evil, but the Inquisition certainly had its issues uh, with it. And, you know, I mean, he, he got read the riot act. Like, you can't talk about that. You can't just say that there's lights in the sky. People are going to think that, you know, it's this and that, and, you know, the Jews are coming to get us and who knows what the fuck they would, they would claim. And so hundreds of years ago, when UAPs would be reported on, it wouldn't make it to the broadsheets or the woodcuts, which was their versions of the news at the time. It would not make it into those. If it didn't pass religious muster, Christian muster particularly. Okay. So these are things that would have to have, you know, much like the, the same filtering that it would have to go through for the Navy to verify that, yes, these are videos where we don't know what the fuck's in them. Okay. It would have to go through a similar process, but in this case, it'd be the Pope who I would argue would be even more powerful <laughs> than the Navy, certainly at the time. Because, I mean, it's one thing to die. It's a whole other thing to have your soul burn in hellfire forever, right? So you didn't just open your mouth and say this sort of shit back then. But they have been reported on multiple times in the 16th century, in the 14th century, in the 12th century, going even further back than that. Again, at times where you, you just, you didn't talk that way. So this is not necessarily anything new. And I think it is interesting. And what can we extrapolate from it? Well, that's another question entirely, but it is interesting that this is not anything new and that research into the matter has continued. And in fact, it's become refined to the point that, you know, we have to, we come up with a new term. We want people to mention what the hell's going on and you know, we, we are investigating these things. Are we ever going to find out the nature of these investigations? Probably not for a hundred years. Okay. Now, again, what do I think is in these videos? What do I think that uh, has got the U S Navy so hot and bothered as far as UAPs go and why they keep researching this and that the conversation around UAPs has not stopped. Uh, I really, I mean, myself, again, I, I stand by what I said earlier. I, I really still think that these are, it's probably some kind of secret government craft, you know, be it foreign or a secret project that the U.S. is engaged in, which is not unheard of. Um, for example, the SR-71 uh, Blackbird, right? That, we didn't learn about that until 1981, but that had been around since the 60s for like, you know, almost 20 years, the SR-71 was a government secret. You know, even to many parts of the military itself. Um, the F-117 Nighthawk, the stealth fighter, that was a government secret from 81 until like 1992, when basically they, they didn't want to keep it a secret anymore because they wanted to test it out in Iraq, okay, during Desert Storm. So having government craft that you don't know about for a decade or more, not unheard of at all, not unheard of at all. And, you know, doesn't it just make sense to want to test your new craft on actual, you know, training grounds where the latest and greatest that is publicly available or at least uh, publicly known about by the military itself, uh, where that's in use to, to, to test its efficacy? Of course of course, that makes total sense. <laughs> Occam's razor. I mean, that's just where it cuts to. Now, if I wanted to come up with an answer besides that, where would I go? Yeah, I'd probably go with the, 
with the CTH. I'd probably go with the crypto terrestrial hypothesis. I mean, I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there. What evidence do I have for that? Well, I don't have a lot. That's why I'm not going with it. But if you want to press me into, you know, what else could it be? Yeah, that's where I'd go. Um, but bottom line is that there are UAPs. They are largely unexplained. Okay. And they're being researched more. And the conversation of what the fuck's that in the sky isn't over. And I'll admit, just on a personal level, I enjoy that on our little blue ball, that being Earth, we still have some mysteries left. And I'll take that any day of the week. I'll be right back with some more Sabotage. Hey, if you have a project that needs reliable cryptocurrency data, check out blocktap.io. Blocktap.io is a universal cryptocurrency API. You can get historical prices for Bitcoin and other digital assets that you can use to build charts and do market analysis. Blockchain data is also indexed, so you can get transaction statistics, address balances, and more for Bitcoin and other networks. Blocktap.io is free for personal use, and you don't even need to create an account to access the API. To get started, try some of the example queries on the homepage at blocktap.io. Again, that's B-L-O-C-K-T-A-P.io, blocktap.io, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Woo, let's get back to the show. Issues of privacy, security, and social engineering. It's HackSec. Woo, time for that hack sec, baby, where we talk all the issues. Well, you, I don't have to tell you, the computer voice told you. <laughs> and no, I don't say, hey, Siri, oh, shit, that thing, oh, damn it. Well, anyway, can't say anything these days, not without something hearing you. Uh, <laughs> or, wow, um, you can't go anywhere these days without an app to track you. I, that's... It's going to get worse, but let's start this off. And in fact, I'm going to start it off with what I, one of the things I wanted to discuss in the foreplay. Um, so I'm very much into fitness, not, not new to sovereign tech listeners. You're well aware of that. And, uh, I go to, used to go to planet fitness very often. Ellen and I, we'd, uh, you know, go and get in our, our workouts, depending on what our schedules look like. But we, you know, we were definitely there a couple times, if not more significantly more a week. Um, and obviously gyms across the United States have been shut down now for over a month. Well, I did finally get an email from planet fitness saying that, uh, that, that described some of their plans for reopening. And the first thing that they, li- I mean, some of the stuff's pretty basic. They have their version of social distancing that they're going to recommend. Uh, they're recommending people to clean the equipment, you know, before, and after use, that just makes sense. Obviously, um, you do that anyway before COVID nineteen. Quite frankly, if you've ever been to to a gym, you you know what I mean. But perhaps the most interesting was that it sounds like, based on the email that they sent me, that they are going to require you to use the app to uh, gain entry to Planet Fitness. 
Now, before you could, you know, you, you'd have your keychain or your card that would have the little barcode on it. You scan it and then you, you know, and away you go, um, you know, no, no big deal. Right. And it was just before they, that, that, you know, basically the big shutdown happened that they had done, they had done a major uh, revision to their app. And maybe some people want to get conspiratorial about that, but where they did a major revision to their app that allowed you to uh, log in or not log in, but gain entry to the gym, you know, get your, you could have the app basically bring up the barcode, right? And then they could scan your phone and that was considered acceptable as to where before it was not. Um, and so with this idea and, and they're, they're selling it as a, like a contactless way to gain access to the gym. Now, I don't know if that means they're going to do something like anytime fitness where, you know, you can, you basically just scan your code and, and you're good. And there's nobody like actually working there at the gym anymore. I don't know if that's how this is going to work out. But after I thought about it for a little bit, I was like, uh, I mean, the initial problem I have with it, okay, is that, well, shit, I have to have a smartphone now to go to the gym or at least to go to Planet Fitness. Okay. And, uh, you know, Ice Planet Zero, it's about the only gym out there. Um, that annoyed me, right? But beyond that, I mean, and, and depending upon what that looks like, you know, if it's not, I mean, I wonder, actually, I kind of wonder if it's going to be using NFC, but this sort of points at, at where I'm going with this. Okay. Cause if it's just something where it's just going to scan my barcode, like the app could do before the shutdown happened, that might, I mean, you could just as easily print it out and then basically use it just like the, you know, the little key card, <laughs> right. That you've got, I mean, that, then that's no big deal. But I wondered if when you know, when, when they announced this, I was like, Oh, this, this bothers me because if it's going to use like NFC or Bluetooth or something like that, is the planet fitness app going to somehow tie into the contact tracing apps that Apple and Google are baking into their smartphones? Um, I, yeah, I mean, there, there's something about this. I, I just, I don't like, and before you think that that's crazy, I put, there's a link in the show notes. There's a couple links for HackSec, but one of them is that in, in China, and they've already been doing this since late April, where you have to, to gain entry into buildings, you have to scan a barcode. The thing is, if you've done, you know, kind of similar to the contact tracing that we've talked about where, you know, if, if you meet a certain criteria, I don't know, you're seven feet away from, or you happen to be in an area where there were reports of people with, uh, you know, with coronavirus or so on, um, your, your QR code will go from green to red. Okay. And you can't just take a screenshot of the QR code, by the way, they, they kind of figured that out. You have to press a button and everything to, to, to make it work. They, they knew that you would try to do that, uh, in China. So to gain access to a lot of places, you have to scan this QR code and you better hope your fucking QR code is green. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Logan's run, but Ironically, now granted, you know, when a news reporter or, you know, when, when the news is going for a story, I mean, they're kind of selective in who they talk to and you can't always really know what the reality is, but many of the people that they talk to and they talk to business owners that again, it, and they send out health inspectors to make sure you, you, you're using this QR code system for people to gain access into your business in China. So it's mandatory. Okay. Um, they interviewed the, a few of the news organizations that I saw, they interviewed people there 
and the business owners and the customers all thought it was a great idea. Now, in America, one could argue that it might be a little bit different, right, in the United States, because in the in fact, I covered this story where um, was it Pew Research did did their poll and basically found that that most Americans or a majority of Americans believe that contact tracing isn't going to do jack shit to help with this situation. And good for them. Um, I saw CNN, I think it was, uh, what was that CIA hack? Uh, that he, what's his name? Oh, Anderson Cooper. Um, who he was, he was talking about it and he said, well, this would never happen in America. And it's like, wait, 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 guys. No, that's exactly what the contact tracing apps do. You idiots. <laughs> it's happening already. You fucking morons. Whatever. Granted, I guess you know, if this story was from later August, maybe they didn't realize that. I'm not sure when exactly the, the news story was that Anderson Cooper was, uh, uh, was talking about, but regardless, um, a part of me wondered if the planet fitness app was somehow going to take advantage of that and may or may not allow you access. Now that it has to be done through an app that could have a custom, either QR code, barcode, whatever, if it's something that where the app has to report in some way uh, your condition, I wonder if, if that's going to be a thing that bothered me. Now I know, and I, and I've actually heard in the sovereign tech telegram group, I've heard from people where there are places of, uh, of, of employ, shall we say are also requiring like app logins, app check-ins as far as what's going on. So this is something that is being pushed. Now you can push back. Okay. And if I find out that it's going this distance, I mean, obviously planet fitness isn't going to get my money and I am going to, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep working out from home, which I've been, you know, building up my home gym steadily, uh, ever since that, you know, the shutdown happened, even though, I mean, look, I love going to the gym, but if this is going to be order of the day, fuck it, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go with this. And, you know, again, before you say, oh no, 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 that's not going to happen here. That's so draconian. That's not going to happen here. Now it's already happening. And again, it's actually happening with apparently a round of applause in China, but in China, it actually gets worse. And maybe it's just a preview because authoritarianism does what authoritarianism does. You know, what happens in China today is largely, I think very much a preview for what you're going to end up getting in any other part of the world, particularly in the United States, because I mean, that's all it takes, right? Is to say, well, it worked great in China. Woo! All right, let's do it here. Well, here's this one from CNN. Uh, China is installing surveillance cameras outside people's front doors and sometimes inside their homes. The story's from April 28th, 2020. Let's read it. The morning after Ian Lahif returned to Beijing, he found a surveillance camera being mounted on the wall outside his apartment door. Its lens was pointing right at him. After a trip to southern China, the 34-year-old Irish uh, expat and his family were starting their two-week home quarantine, a mandatory measure enforced by the Beijing government to stop the spread of the novel coronavirus. He said he opened the doors. The camera was being installed without warning. Quote, having a camera outside your door is an incredible erosion of privacy, uh, said Lahif. It just seems to be a massive data grab, and I don't know how much of it is actually legal, end quote. 
Although there is no official statement stating that cameras must be fixed outside the homes of people under quarantine, it has been happening in some cities across China since least since at least February, according to three people who re, uh, recounted their experience with the cameras to CNN, as well as social media posts and government statements. China currently has no specific national law to regulate the use of surveillance cameras, but the devices are already a regular part of public life. They're often are they are often there watching when people cross the street, enter a shopping mall, dine in a restaurant, board a bus, or even sit in a school classroom. More than 20 million cameras had been installed across China as of 2017, according to state broadcaster CCTV. But other sources suggest a much higher number. According to a report from IHS Market Technology, uh, China had 349 million surveillance cameras installed as of 2018, nearly five times the number of cameras in the United, in the United States. Oh, oh, but just wait, just wait, because you know what? Capitalism, baby. You don't even have, it doesn't have to be a government mandate to put a, a bunch of surveillance cameras in the United States. People will pay for the privilege here. Are you kidding me? Oh, give me that ring camera that talks to my kids in their bedrooms. Oh yeah. G- give me the, give me the, the, the put, yeah. Mount it right above the bed so that I can watch my girlfriend masturbate. And then a hacker can get into it or cracker as we call them on here. Hackers are heroes. And he can talk to her and say, Ooh, yeah, baby. Wait, wait, wait. What you thought I made those stories up? No, these things happened and you pay for the privilege. I mean, at least this, this Irish expat, fuck it. At least, uh, you know, the government fronted the bill on this one. He got it for, I mean, he's getting his surveillance for free. And I mean, I got to admit, if I got to live in a surveillance society, I'd rather not pay for the surveillance device myself. I'd much rather have it, you know, well, I mean, granted all government money is really comes from private earning. And so whatever, ultimately, I guess I'm paying for it, but you get my point. Can I please have my surveillance society for free? Like they do in China. I don't want to have to pay top dollar for a ring video doorbell. Reading on China also has eight of the world's 10 most surveilled cities based on the number of cameras per 1000 people, according to UK based technology research firm Comparatech. And of course a UK based technology firm would know a thing or two about closed circuit cameras being all over the place, surveilling everybody, right? Because that's order of the day there too. But now the pandemic has brought surveillance cameras closer to people's private lives from public spaces in the city, right to the front doors of their homes. And in some rare cases, surveillance cameras inside their apartments. CNN has requested comment from China's national health commission. Uh, the ministry of public security did not accept CNN's fax request for comment. Oh, you're kidding me. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so bottom line here, folks, a preview of things to come. This is, you are sitting in the movie theater, right? You all have screens in front of you right now. So do I, as I'm recording this, cause I got to read this shit from something and just imagine on YouTube, here it comes. You know, I know you can't go to the theater anymore, but it's coming attractions. Now, like I said, is this happening in America yet? Yeah. As far as we know, this isn't exactly happening yet. The government key statement, the government is not putting cameras inside your home. But then in the United States, they don't have to. Like I said, in the United States, we decide, well, hell, I'd like to buy a camera and place it right in my bedroom, baby. And a part of me feels like that's worse. 
that, I mean, it's one thing for an expat, you know, to have a camera put out in front and, you know, aiming at his door and everything. And he's totally right. It absolutely is an, ev- uh, an erosion and invasion of his privacy with, without, without question. I, you know, there's no argument from me um, on that. Okay. But at least I'm glad he can come to that realization. And it's something that's effectively being forced on him. The scarier part for me is not this. And people are terrified of this. The scarier part for me is that in other parts of the world, people are doing this and they are fronting the bill. You know, you're concerned. Yeah. There's so many, I mean, I I see so many people who are like, Oh, COVID-19 is a conspiracy. Oh, it's a government conspiracy. It's a power grab. The government doesn't need to do a power grab. Most of you are buying into the shit hook, line and sinker without COVID-19. You were doing it beforehand. Why does contact tracing work? Because you're all carrying a smartphone around with you. You already were the implement of the authoritarianism that you are so concerned about that you think is some kind of grand goddamn conspiracy against you because of coronavirus or that it's being taken advantage of because of coronavirus. You created it yourself. You bought it. You paid for it with your own blood, sweat, and tears and greenback. And hell, some of you probably used Bitcoin and goddamn you for it. I get, you know, yeah, I, I think about that. I think about that. Wait, wait, let's see. People buy surveillance cameras with Bitcoin. Do they even understand what Bitcoin's all about? Guess not. But that's a side problem. I get, I hear some of the arguments that people make of, oh, how this is, this is, you know, yeah, government overreached during COVID-19 and all this other crap. The only reason they are able to overreach is because you already built to use a libertarianism. You already built the roads that allowed them to drive all over you. Don't yell at them. Don't go after them. Take a look at your own fucking life. Get your own house in order, hopefully without any ring cameras in it and maybe toss your smartphones off the side. I mean, I'd love to as well. I understand, you know, we have to work and now, I mean, certainly that, that again, if there's a moral to this episode, it's to open your fucking mouth before things get bad. Okay. And as far as contact tracing, a lot of the other stuff, yeah, go ahead and let's, 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 you know, shout it from the mountaintops saying, this is a terrible idea. This is not going to work. I mean, Bruce Schneier wrote a great blog post saying, this is, this is bullshit. This is, this isn't effective at all to, to help with, with fighting a pandemic, you know? So there's plenty of people who aren't on the conspiratorial side who are admitting the same that yes, contact tracing is a bad idea right from the get go. Awesome. Dynamite. I'm glad that that happened. Okay. But I want you to take an assessment. I want you to talk to other people and say, Hey, you know, let's think about this. And whenever something comes up about what the fuck the government's doing because of COVID-19 or blah, 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 take an assessment of what is in your pockets, what's in your hand. And maybe even that device, that little speaker that's sitting off to the right of you right now and say, wait, how is that enabling what I'm bitching about right now? You don't want to think about that though, do you? You want to be nice and comfy. Well, you take your pick. The 10th law of thermodynamics, as I always say on this show, there's a trade-off between convenience and security. If you want security from overreach of any stripe, 
you are going to have to get rid of some conveniences. That is a fact of the universe that you cannot change despite what any programmer will tell you. Fucker, they are lying to you. We can make Bitcoin work for grandma. No, you can't. You're a liar. Not for it to be done right. Anyway. Think about it. Here it is. Your coming attractions. Go ahead, click on the links in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. I'll be right back with more. Try and have some fun. Woo! From Big Finish Productions, Blake 7, the classic audio adventures. I'm taking Liberator in on manual. We'll be in teleport range in two minutes. What the hell was that? Information. Liberator has been attacked. You don't say. Put up the force wall. Confirm. Message to all ground commanders. Initiate the final phase. Let's crush these rebels once and for all. My name is Avon. Kerr Avon. Kerr Avon. Our hostage arrives. Which you may be unnecessary. As a hostage, it's nice to be superfluous. You can go to Blake7.com to find more of the new adventures of one of science fiction's greatest masterpieces. Blake7 at Blake7.com. Your questions, the man of tomorrow's answers. Email questions at sovereigntech.com. Time for important messages. I mean, tell me you can't picture it. Some fucking hillbilly. Uh, I hate to say that's so disparaging, but we're going to go with it. Some fucking hillbilly is telling you COVID-19 is not real. Contact tracing is, is, is a government surveillance program. And he's telling you this from a video that he posted on YouTube from his fucking Android phone. Give me a fucking break. Anyway, let's talk about some real security, shall we? <laughs> we got a great question. A question I wanted to get into in the last uh, important messages uh, segment, or we, we didn't get into it because basically half the episode was important messages last week. But uh, a great question that I wanted to get into in the last episode, but we'll get to it here, uh, is something that's actually, I think, really useful and, and interesting to consider, especially based upon the conversation we were just having. Here we go. Dr. S. I like that. Dr. S., if you wanted to securely store some information digitally, a digital file, uh, using a paper or physical key without the paper phys slash physical obviously looking like a key, and have it confidently accessible by anyone with the key plus file in a hundred years, how would you do it? Awesome question. Okay. Uh, and we could get into things like, uh, was a stenography, right? Where you hide stuff within a picture, uh, very cleverly, but I'm going to guess based on what you're asking here. And this was asked in the telegram group. Uh, so people can go and you, know, you can see what was asked and all that. And, you know, I don't need to mention the person's name. It's, it's in the telegram group. Um, this, again, dynamite question. This is awesome. Now to open it up, uh, really the hardest part here. Okay. Is that 
and, and we're going to go a few different ways with this. Okay. But the hardest part here is making sure that you have a hardware software combo that is still viable in a hundred years, right? Like for example, say you stored a file. I mean, this is one of the funny things about M disks, right? M disks, which might be part of the answer here. Um, M disks are optical media, DVD or Blu-ray that supposedly can last a thousand years. Okay. And we'll get our money back in a thousand years if it doesn't, but supposedly lasts a thousand years. Now here's the rub in a thousand years. What are the chances that DVD players are still going to be a thing? Right. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> having a great storage medium, a near indestructible storage medium means nothing. If there's, isn't anything that can read the storage medium itself. Okay. And so having something in a hundred years, that's a little bit of a problem. Admittedly, if there's anything that's going to be able to read anything that's a hundred years old, it's probably going to be windows <laughs> because they're already a quarter of a way over a quarter of a way there. I mean, it is, it is apps. I mean, fuck windows, fuck Microsoft, but it is absolutely remarkable. The, the file extensions that windows 10 can still recognize going so far back. I mean, decades back. So might want to keep a windows machine around. Okay. We got that part. <laughs> um, I mean, the real solution there is, is that whatever, whatever you're going to use to be, to be the software that can recognize what's going to happen. Um, you want it to be, you want it to be something that you have the source code for that way you could build it from source on whatever fucking operating system happens to exist in a hundred years. Okay. So that, that's, that's really key. And I will give answers to the specific things that you can do. Okay. So we're not just going to be all theoretical here. So you've got that. All right. Now, the other part to this is that you do want it to be something that there's a good chance that you can read, not just, again, you can have the file storing. That is one thing. Um, but as far as, and, and, you know, maybe USB will still be a thing in a hundred years. I mean, USB has got a pretty good track record of going, well, I don't know, in about eight years, I guess USB or actually less than that in about five years, USB, not necessarily as a consumer available standard, but as a standard is going to be almost 30 years old. And that's, that's getting towards a hundred. Um, but anyway, so as far as like where to store this file, you run into an issue with that, but I actually have a solution for that as well, as well as the key. Okay. Um, so you have a lot of different mediums to store information on that can last a while. Like, I mean, there's Sapphire hard drives. Those are starting to become a thing. There's the aforementioned M disc, which would actually be a really handy thing because on an M disc, you could basically store the file as well as the entire operating system that, and you could like put it like a live Linux operating system on it that would know what to do with the file. Now, again, we run into the issue with the hardware, right? Where the M disc, you know, the, or the operating system, the version of Linux might not be able to read, you know, the, uh, uh, or might not be able to, it might not have drivers to operate on, you know, a computer a hundred years in the future. Okay. So there's that issue and I'm bringing these issues up. I'm going to have an answer for all of them. All right. But we're just, we're, we're, we're laying them out here. Um, and I mean, effectively, like, I guess the basic way that you could go about this is, you know, you can make an M disc, have a say family photos or something on it, you know, that way nobody gets rid of it. And maybe people will consider that important enough to, if they need to transfer it to another medium somehow, 
to save the data that's on there, that they could do that. Okay. But then if it's not really family photos and people go to transfer it, they're going to find out, Oh, you know, this is an encrypted, uh, 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 you know, store of some kind. And so what, what are we going to do? Um, so, so here, here's the deal. Uh, and also, I mean, you can't, this is where the problem with stenography comes in where if you, cause I think there is actually software out there where you can take a picture, like say a family photo, uh, like a graduation photo that you would hope people would, you know, consider important. And certainly, I mean, I know, uh, my family has photos from, well, at this point now, probably shy of a hundred years ago. Uh, so a family photo is a great way to store things. And yeah, you could engage in some degree of stenography, but then what are people doing with a lot of those hundred year old photos now? Now they're getting them all digitally scanned and not sweating so much, uh, the originals, right? Because they were really just waiting for a fire to take them away from them anyway. So I don't think family photos is such a great idea because there's no guarantee that the stenographic information would, would somehow transfer, uh, when you do the scan. So that, that's not something that I would recommend as far as that goes. Um, what I would do is, and there is a specific piece of software that I'm going to recommend and it's called paperback. Okay. Now this gets really interesting. Now I'm not exactly sure what you're trying to save. I would assume it's not a large file. You know, I mean, we were just mentioning Bitcoin. Maybe it's like a wallet.dat and you just don't want people to know that it's a private key for Bitcoin, right? And I understand that. Okay. I, I get that. Like you don't want to necessarily do a paper wallet because then if somebody sees it, you know, they're just going to wait for the right moment to cash it out. That's where, you know, in a hundred years, Bitcoin could be worth millions, if not more. And I mean, and I mean that by comparison to today's, you know, greenback, I could certainly imagine it. Um, so you don't want it to look like that. So here's, here's my recommendation to somehow, especially if you are gone and, and your best bet for people, like for it being passed down and being taken, you know, seriously, here's what I would do. So you're going to use this software called paperback. What paperback does is you put whatever file it happens to be into the software. I mean, you can basically drag and drop it. Okay. And you can, this is open source. You can get the source code for it. All right. So that way you could build it out in the future if you wanted to. And this will print out a series of very light QR codes. Okay. It, it almost looks like tiling. It's not just one big QR code, right? That'd be too obvious, but it's a series of kind of like gray QR codes. You can then scan those QR codes or even just take a picture of them. And that can get run into, you know, in through, through paperback. Actually, it can get decoded by hand. Like if, if somebody knows exactly what more or less what they're looking at, this could be done with the human eye. You, you know, you could, you could bring out the code from the QR codes themselves. This is such a brilliant solution. All right. But I mean, and, and, and what makes it doubly brilliant is that it doesn't just have to be the key. It could be the fucking file and it. Then the file itself could get rebuilt from the paper. Okay. Now I'm not sure what order to discuss this, but I suppose one of the big questions would be, is that, yeah, but paper, like you just said, stallion, that can just, you know, go up and smoke literally, you know, it, it can be set on fire or it can get wet and then it's ruined or blah, blah, blah. Aha. So, and I'm a big fan of these. Um, I use these notebooks myself. Uh, there is a company called right and rain, and there are other companies that do the same thing where they make effectively waterproof paper. And in fact, they make it, they make printable waterproof paper as well. Okay. Um, 
And that again, designed to work with you, you want to use a higher end ink. Okay. And you know, printer ink. So that's kind of important, but you could use this effectively, you know, indestructible paper, right? Uh, I mean, not, it's not totally indestructible, but it's partly indestructible. It's going to last time. And they, they also, you know, sell it as being a long lasting, uh, you know, paper solution. So you're going to store, you, you know, you can have the key on there and you can have the file itself, you know, all right on, on this paper printed out. Now, how do you keep people from throwing out this paper? Uh, you know, is it like, and, and, and how do you keep it from really being seen as the multitude of QR codes that it is here? Here's where you're, you're going to do something kind of interesting. Okay. So now if you're just trying to hide the key, I'd kind of do the same thing, but if you're trying to do the key file and the file itself, which I think is the really interesting solution here is that you can also, again, you can print out, literally print out the code of the file itself. That's so fucking great. I would get a piece made. All right. And these aren't that expensive to do. There's companies actually online that'll do this kind of like custom photo framework and everything. Um, I would get, I print out, okay. Uh, you know, the, the entire file that you've made with paperback with the, with the, the software paperback, I'd print that out. And then I would have that be the backing, like the background on like a, a, a shadow box that has a glass front to it. Okay. And this glass front can be like the stylized, maybe, maybe at that case, like a family photo of some kind, but it's something that is personal, that is representative of the family, something that is akin to in the abstract. I, I mean, you could, I guess you could do this literally, but the concept would be similar to like, it's like representative of your family's coat of arms or something that way a family member wants to hold on to it because it is a family heirloom, right? You've seen these shadow boxes before where it's like a, it's like a, a photo, a giant photo that you hang on the wall. Okay. That, uh, you know, it's like almost three dimensional. Okay. And it'd have the glass in front and it'd be somewhat trans, uh, translucent to where you could see the background. And in that background, Again, because it's translucent, you know, you'll see like this pattern in the back, but it doesn't look like a QR code. All right. But it is all the, all those pieces of right and rain, nearly indestructible, you know, weatherproof paper. Okay. That actually holds the entire file or the key file, whatever size you want to go with. And I, I mean, this, this is how I would do it because you've got to put it on something that is heirloom a, that can go the distance, which that paper can b. You're not going to recognize it because it looks like kind of fuzzed out sort of in the background. So you wouldn't know what it was. And you're putting it into an heirloom, uh, a family heirloom, you know, something that is again, in concept, something that people would want to keep for generations. Um, and, and that, that's, that's how I would hide it. And then when the time comes, you know, either take off the back or break the glass or whatever, and boom, there's your file or there's your key or whatever. Um, I mean, even inside the shadow box, I mean, I suppose you could kind of hide shit if you wanted some other alternatives, um, but ma make it something really beautiful and partly fragile. That way people take care of it and consider it important. That's why I was recommending the kind of the, the translucent, uh, more of like a glass front 
uh, to it with, with some kind of like, you know, some kind of mosaic photo or whatever the fuck, you know, on it. Um, and you could get that made again. The stuff's not expensive to get done online. Uh, a couple hundred bucks, if not significantly less. And I mean, in the $50 range, you could probably get something made uh, like this and paperback is basically for free, you know, and you spend, I don't know, whatever, 20, 30 bucks on the, uh, on the right and rain paper. And, and that, that would really, that, I think that would do the trick. Um, you know, maybe storing stuff. I don't know. I mean, you could talk about micro SD cards at that point for storage of a file. If you're just going to do the key on the, you know, on the paperback, right. But that, that's, that's what I would, that's what I would do. Um, and again, you don't need paperback itself because it's such a simple QR code system. You don't need paperback itself to really retrieve it. Again, you could, you could almost, you know, you could pretty much do it by hand if, you know, if one were so inclined and if it's important enough, I imagine they would be, uh, uh so inclined. So yeah, back, you got to consider that backwards compatibility. And I think again, doing something that's a visual medium, not an optical medium, but a visual medium like paper where, you know, <laughs> like we were just saying, we're always going to have cameras around us that can scan, you know, and know what to do with those QR codes. And I mean, the most basic, the most basic QR scanner software, uh, or scanner software of any kind would probably know how to turn that into what paperback spews out, turn that into raw code. And then away you go. Um, so that that's, I put a link in the show notes for the paperback software. So you get an idea of what that looks like, but that that's what I would do. If it's something that needs to be hidden, it's gotta be a hundred years, you know, a uh, hundred years later, it's gotta last that long. And my family's going to look at it. Uh, that's the direction I would go. There might be better software solutions out there. Paperback's the only one that I'm really familiar with. It's, it's somewhat a little bit older software, but it still works fine. I was actually just testing it the other day to make sure that it works. Um, when I was, uh, you know, kind of war gaming, uh, your question. So yeah, give that a shot. Um, anyway, I, I don't know. I mean, there might be other possible ways of going about it. In fact, you can email me if you want questions at sovereigntech.com If you have other ideas about how to go about this, how to be very discreet with, uh, without knowing that something is a QR code or the key or the private key, uh, and then how to store it. And, and I, I think it's fun to consider what about a hundred years from now? Like, how do you handle the hardware situation? That's why I went with a paper solution. And, you know, I'm a big fan of paper wallets, brain wallets, you know, as far as like cryptocurrencies go, I think those are tremendous, uh, options because they are agnostic to platforms in a very real way. So anyway, things to consider, um, We'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech and we'll have some more fun. What? What do you mean you don't have to take your clothes off? What a bunch of sh- Okay, okay, no, you don't have to take your clothes off to have a good time, but come on, we all want to, don't we? <laughs> I just, who, who writes lyrics like that? I can't believe it. Uh, anyway, let's get back to Sovereign Tech. Now entering the gaming grid. 
the latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here is your host, Brian Sovereign. Time for the gaming grid where we really get to have fun. Um, unless I'm complaining about something in gaming, but I'm actually not going to complain about what we're talking about here. Uh, first thing is, boy, we got a surprise drop. I mean, it came out of nowhere. Maybe they were waiting for E3 to talk about it. But then, of course, E3, along with a lot of other uh, gaming expos, are not happening uh, around the world due to uh, COVID-19. But uh, NetherRealm Studios, the little studio that could, baby. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm a huge Mortal Kombat fan, uh, along with Street Fighter. I mean, there's plenty of franchises that I'm a huge fan of because I grew up with them. Uh, not because I'm nostalgic. I want them to evolve and move on and grow up even more. And in fact, what child should possibly be nostalgic about Mortal Kombat? Such a wild blood fest. No. Uh, but because I've been playing them forever, then yes. Of course, they have a nice, comfortable feel. That is not the heart of nostalgia. That is the heart of a good time. So Mortal Kombat 11, which is the latest entry, uh, which I have been playing on Switch for a while. I, I mean, the, the, you got to understand for how long people wanted really great portable Mortal Kombat action. Okay. And they wanted the same for Street Fighter as well. Street Fighter got out of the gate with this with Street Fighter 4 3D edition for the 3DS which is probably, and I would argue actually, that's the best edition of Street Fighter 4 out there bar none, partly because it uses the 3DS's second screen, the touch screen, to allow you to do like the really crazy combos because they can just put any button they want there and it turns into another part of the controller. I thought that it was a really, really great move. But bottom line, we've wanted portable versions of these games for a very long time. And I mean, I can still remember the Game Boy Advance version of Mortal Kombat. And that, uh, <laughs> that has quite a history as far as being considered one of the worst games of all time. In fact, uh, was it Phil Spencer, uh, the guy who's the head of the Xbox division at Microsoft? Maybe he wasn't at the time, but when Microsoft was first starting off in the whole console war, they apparently he had a copy of the Game Boy Advance version of Mortal Kombat on his desk to remind him of how not to make a game. That's how bad it was. But Mortal Kombat 11 on switch certainly has been a very different story. Uh, it may be a little, a little, literally a little graphically, <laughs> uh, toned down, but the heart of the game and all the features are still there. Uh, and it's brilliant. And we did get an announcement. I think it was the morning of May 6th from NetherRealm studios that they are going to come out with an entire expansion pack. I was a little confused by this at first, uh, but an entire expansion pack that's going to add a whole new storyline, which I mean, the, the cinematic level of these games, I mean, basically you have Shang Tsung in them and they, they just transpose Carrie Tagawa and Carrie Tagawa is doing the voice in it and everything. And you know, Carrie Tagawa is amazing. So uh, it's brilliant to have him there. Uh, but so we're getting more story, a lot of characters. There's a link in the show notes where you can check out the trailer for it. The, tra the trailer is epic as fuck. I don't know how, how much I want to spoil in it, but you get a lot of characters um, coming back and we are getting more playable characters, including Fujin, who I don't think we've been able to play in a Mortal Kombat game in over a decade, uh, as well as uh, Shiva is going to be in there, of course, from Mortal Kombat 2 and kind of the biggest surprise, but a welcome one. Robocop. 
not kidding. I know you're wondering, you're like, wait a minute. How, how does, how does RoboCop, how's this going to fit? Well, storyline wise, I mean, Mortal Kombat has been dealing with cyborgs in their mythology, in its mythology since Mortal Kombat two, actually, um, like, you know, Cyrex and so on. But I, I know like the speed question like that, that's a big question. Well, you know, the T 800, uh, that, that Arnold, you know, the, the Arnold presentation of the T 800 in Mortal Kombat 11 isn't exactly a speedy character at all. And I think it works perfectly. Uh, you know, when you have like the rifle and so on like that, that, that makes it, that, that gives it an edge. And I imagine with RoboCop, it's going to be similar. They're probably going to break out the jetpack from RoboCop three. I, I would be fine with that. Peter Weller is doing the voice for, for RoboCop again, which he hasn't been, he hasn't done the voice for RoboCop since oh, RoboCop two. Uh, and I, I think that's, fucking great. Uh, so really, really excited for this. The storyline, the continuation of the storyline looks great, but then also to get RoboCop in this. And you know what that means? Cause I just mentioned the T 800, right? That means we get the matchup we've been wanting to see in some form for a long while outside of the comic books, none other than RoboCop versus Terminator, which is one of the best comic book series ever made in my opinion. Uh, so we're going to get that. We're going to be able to, to play that one out. Got to admit my money's on RoboCop, but <laughs> We'll see how it goes. Uh, I was going to talk about the Mario 35th anniversary, but we'll save that uh, maybe for next week. We'll save that for another time. We'll wrap this baby up. I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Game over. The most incredible television event ever as you join the crew of Battlestar Galactica. Right here, you creepy crawling. for life in a hostile galaxy. Most of us are dead. Alone, with only one hope, Battlestar Galactica and her crew. There is no other destination. Commander Adama, Captain Apollo, the intrepid Starbuck, and the dazzling Athena, searching for a new and peaceful world. We may as well live for today. We might not have many left. Let the attack adventure Battlestar Galactica Album of the Week It is time for our album of the week and going to be pretty quick on this one. Uh, but it's something I, I mean, I just found it on a lark on getmetal.club. Um, I saw, you know, the, the, the cover of it and I was like, well, what the hell is this? You know, I have a, a minor obsession with, I'm, I could get into a big conversation around this and, and maybe, maybe I'll take a little bit of the time here to do so. I don't know about you, but as a guy, like as far as listening to say love songs or, you know, sexier music and things like this, I like listen to women sing about that. Right. Because I mean, or I should say as a straight male. Okay. I enjoy that because you know, it's like a woman singing to you. I mean, certainly I can appreciate, you know, me being the guy and feeling what, I don't know, whatever Bon Jovi sing or not Bon Jovi. Well, yeah, sure. Bon Jovi, uh, or, you know, say for example, Michael Bolton or Richard Marks, like what they're singing about to a gal, because I might, you know, share those, those kind of sentiments. Right. 
And that can be a fine and wonderful thing, but I, I never understood. And, and I've met a lot of guys in my life who just refuse to listen to uh, women singers more or less. And I, I never got that. It's like, wait, you wouldn't want to listen to Madonna or Whitney Houston. What the fuck's wrong with you? You know, or Celine Dion for that matter. And I'm not kidding. You know, I, I know I have a reputation of being like a, you know, pretty hardcore metalhead, but um, no, I love everybody. I just listed off. I, I listen to absolutely regularly. So I always appreciate it, especially, you know, when, uh, when the ladies want to put on a hard rock edge of some kind. And I'll admit when I'm looking at new albums coming out, if I find out something is female fronted, uh, I get interested, you know, for example, like Amaranth and Nightwish. I mean, go down the fucking list. Uh, now something you don't get a lot of is a lot of female fronted AOR. That is a little more of a rare bird. And whenever I run into that, and I've mentioned some of them in the past, Chrissy Steele, Lee Aaron. I mean, you can kind of go down the list of them. There aren't, unfortunately it's a short list. Uh, you know, I mean, or even think of, I mean, I don't know that Hailstorm would fit in as, as AOR cause they can play pretty hard, but I'm sure Lizzie Hale would love to be considered AOR, <laughs> you know, or would love to fit in with that or do an AOR album. I'd love for her to do it too. But uh, this is a great, this is from producer Paul Sabu. Now, if you're into melodic rock and AOR, you know who Paul Sabu is. I mean, I don't have to, I don't have to explain that guy. Uh, but he worked with this gal named Terry Timms in 2001. And as far as I know, she only had one album. It was called Whole Lot of Trouble. The only really hard rocker on the album is ironically a song called, it's the first track and it's called Rock Hard. Uh, I like it. I, I, th I think it really, really works. I think the whole album works. It's just got a, it's got a nice little edge to it. Not very high end. I mean, it's great production. It's great writing. I mean, it's Paul Sabu, you know, behind it uh, on the mixing board, but it's definitely a lighter touch as far as melodic rock or AOR uh, goes, but it's so rare that we get this kind of brand uh, female fronted that I can't help but mention it. And, you know, I can't help but appreciate it. So Terry Tim's it's T E R I T I M S and check it out. If you can find it, good luck finding it. I don't know if it might be on Spotify. In fact, if it's not, I'd almost consider that's a badge of honor to go ahead and do find it and listen to it because it's not on Spotify um, because fuck them. But anyway, Terry Tim's that's my uh, album of the week and we'll be right back with some more sovereignty. Woo. Hey, baby, I know, I know, you are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to FastMail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. Fastmail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup. And it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo! Let's get back to the show. The Golden Stallion doing whatever he wants to do. The Climax. It is time for the Climax. And this week, I'd like to talk to you about a book. Um, it is a book that I am still ruminating on heavily. It is a book that uh, I remember reading 
before I could really comprehend everything that was being laid out in it. Um, and I want to recommend it to you. It's not one available as uh, an ebook on any major platform. That doesn't mean it's not available as an ebook because someone, uh, I can't imagine who would have done this, might have bought the book and had it professionally scanned. Uh, I mean, really, I, who, who does that sort of thing? I mean, you'd think they'd boast about it or something on their show all the time if they did. But anyway, this book is about none other than someone who I, I am reticent to call hero. I would certainly call pioneer and I would call visionary. And the book is Gene Roddenberry, the last conversation. And it's, uh, it was Yvonne uh, Fern uh, wrote it with him. And basically it's an entire book where for, I, I get the, the, the sense that for about a year before he died and maybe Gene knew he was dying. Uh, and there's certainly hint of that or that, that starts to come up towards the, towards the end of the book. But he basically had her follow him around, hang out at his house, stay at his house at points even, um, and just have conversations with him and record them and write them out. And it was a way for him to, I, I don't know, not necessarily do an autobiography, even though there is some, some biographical aspects to this book, but basically like lay out a lot of his ideas. And it's probably a lot easier for Gene Roddenberry to do, especially at the time, than to actually like sit down and write a book because who knows if he, he'd even finish it. Um, it's an interesting idea. I don't, I don't know of a lot of books that are in this style where it is a conversational piece had with somebody who's, I mean, almost about to, or who's about to die, uh, but covers such a broad range of topics and where it's not something again, that's like written out as, you know, the only other way I'd imagine a book like this being done would be something like the meditations of Marcus Aurelius or something like that. Right. Um, so it, it's a very unique book in that sense, because again, it is, and, and it makes it a breeze to read. And it's actually not a very long book, even though the hardcover looks large. Um, that's the nature of hardcovers when they're really not, uh, it's, it's a fairly short book and it does give you an insight. And, you know, we're hoping that Yvonne was, was being honest, uh, throughout it, but it does give an insight into Gene Roddenberry. And there are things in it couple of things. And, and I've talked to Ellen about some of these, but that I, I mean, cause that's, that's what we do. You know, we're having breakfast and we have conversations of whatever, uh, you know, we've encountered. I mean, I, I think, uh, it's absolutely one of the most beautiful aspects of our relationship, but I, you know, I, I talked about these things cause they were so striking to me and I just didn't expect them. And, you know, you always have to keep in mind to uh, separate the art from the artist. And Gene Roddenberry was certainly an artist when it comes to Star Trek, as well as other things. I mean, and this is fitting to talk about because we've recently reviewed uh, some of his works, his extant television work that he did, uh, you know, again, outside of Star Trek, right? Like Genesis 2, Planet Earth, Strange New World, Spectre, so on. Quester tapes, we didn't talk about that yet, but we might review that soon. Um, now, as I've said, and I've talked about this in other shows that I've done, um, we know now, 
again, a lot of this wasn't known when I was a kid. And when this book first came out, this book initially came out like 94. So it came out. And as you read it, obviously well after he died, I mean, that's why they're able to call it the last conversation, right? Um, we know now that, that Gene Ronberry really, as far as having any control of Star Trek, he had maybe a whopping five years out of its, you know, even at, at the time that, that, that he, he was alive out of its 30 year or so history, you know, he had very, very little control. You know, he had control of the cage. He had control of the first two years of start of, of the original series. Uh, I guess he had some control with the animated series. He had control of the first two of Star Trek, the motion picture, and he had control of the first two seasons of the next generation. Now for a lot of people, that's Star Trek. That doesn't even matter. Right. Minus maybe the first two seasons of the original series for a lot of people, like a lot of people don't like the first two seasons of, uh, of the next generation. So he's had, he had very little control over star. And also a lot of people don't like the motion picture, even though that opinion's changing. But anyway, you know, I don't think people realize because they keep plastering Gene's name all over everything. But again, he had very, very little control, um, over the show. But he did, you know, regardless of what you think of him, again, I do think he was visionary and he laid down a lot of the more radical concepts that we now take for granted or did take for granted before CBS got their hands on it, uh, that we take for granted with Star Trek, right? Like, you know, before Discovery and, uh, and Picard, um, particularly like the prime directive being, being seen as a positive thing, um, you know, or the, you know, the no money economy. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of those elements. Perhaps one of the most striking things that I learned out of this book is that Gene Roddenberry, and this, this bothers me. This is the thing that I like, you know, I had to talk to Ellen about this bothered me. He didn't think that the Borg were bad. Like he was involved in the creation of the Borg. Um, like originally they were supposed to be an insectoid race and so on. I mean, you know, it's an interesting history of how the idea got developed in the first place, but he actually didn't think the, you know, when he was talking to Yvonne and he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, the Borg, he's like, yeah, they're the villains on the show, but actually I don't think they're that bad. And I, (laughs) and I read this and I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) No. (laughs) In fact, for a good chunk of the book, he's arguing with the author or the biographer, if you want to call her that he's arguing with her about the place of the individual. And he's laying out throughout much of the book that, yeah, he thinks humanity is evolving, is becoming something new and something more. Now, if you heard, if you went, if you go back in the podcast feed and you find, I used to do a show called sovereign Trek, uh, not sovereign tech, but sovereign Trek, where I talked about star Trek. I, I just can't do it anymore not any of the new shit anyway. I, I, so I don't do the show anymore. Um, but if you go back to that, you, where I reviewed the novelization of star Trek, the motion picture, a lot of what he says in the last conversation is basically some of the ideas that he, some of the more radical ideas that he laid out for humanity in the novelization of star Trek, the motion picture, not the movie, but the novelization 
like this idea that there were, in fact, even in, in the motion picture novel, it talks about these new humans. They call them the new humans and they have more of a group mind. That's clearly a direction that Gene was thinking like, and he thought that humanity itself was going now the biographer kind of argues with him. Yeah. But what about the, the individual, the individual is important and so on. And Gene always kind of backs off and is like, yeah, well, I think the individual will always be there, you know, but, but that there's this, you know, new type of human coming. And certainly it sounds like something out of, uh, you know, uh, something out of Tailhard, right? Something out of Pierre Tailhard de Chardin, something like the Omega point. I mean, it certainly smacks of that, what he's describing. Um, and he mentions a couple people that he says understood the philosophy of Star Trek before Star Trek was a thing. Of course, there are people who were contemporaries. They were alive at the time. Um, He's not talking about anybody ancient or anything. That would have been really interesting if he did that. Uh, in fact, he pays very little respect to any kind of like ancient philosophers or people who, you know, might've come up with some of the ideas that he lays out. I think Gene reading this, I mean, Gene Roddenberry genuinely was visionary, but I think he thinks that he was coming up with stuff that was totally new. You know, like that, that, that no one had ever really thought of before. Now, I don't think that that's entirely accurate. And also what Gene Roddenberry thought was good. I don't necessarily agree with being good. Like, I mean, I, I think that the, the collective nature of the Borg, oh no, you know, now if I'm okay with, and, and, and I loved, in fact, I consider it a great science fiction book, the, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture, the novelization. I'm totally fine with there being, you know, like, you know, maybe in the future, like Gene Roddenberry's predicting in this book, that there's going to be this more hive minded type of humanity. One could argue it's already here, but I, would, I don't mind if, if that exists, but as long as we're allowed to coexist, you know, like that, or not, not that anybody has to allow it, but as long as it, it's a scenario where we can coexist, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally fine with that being a thing, but that holds that kind of humanity. And I think I've talked to some degree about the Omega point in recent episodes of Cyber Tech as well. I, again, Roddenberry gives no fealty to, to, uh, Deschardins about, about any, about that whole concept, which he, I think he was ahead of the curve on. Um, I have no interest in that, you know, and, and part of the problem though, is that I think a lot of this group think sort of automatically assumes that everyone else has to play ball in that way. Kind of like the Borg operates where they need to add, you know, your technological and cultural distinctiveness to their own or biological distinctiveness to their own, not cultural. Obviously the Borg have arguably have none, even though they will ignore you if you're not seen as a threat, but then what makes you a threat? You're walking on eggshells, right? Um, you know, as long as there can be coexistence, I don't care what the fuck exists, but that's usually where the problem lies. Right. And so, you know, here I am rallying for my individuality and the whole time I'm reading this book, I'm just like, I'm kind of, you know, not, not violently, but I'm very much shaking my fist against it. I'm like, gee, no, come on, don't, don't, don't go there, man. You know? <laughs> and I, I don't know. Like when he writes about it in the motion picture novelization, he writes about individuals and the new humans, you know, kind of grudgingly coexisting. Right. And that they'll always sort of, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll always both kind of coexist. And I'm fine with that. Um, 
but he was more writing in this book that no, he's like, you know, I, I, I think eventually everything's just going to, to evolve into this. And I don't know where that mindset came from for him because beforehand, I think, and, and granted this was a theme in science fiction in the 19, uh, later 1950s and 1960s that humanity could become individually as individuals become more godlike. And certainly you see this in the episode with Gary Mitchell with, uh, you know, where no man has gone before. You know, I don't know when he, when he got away from that, because it's still also in, uh, in, you know, first season episodes of Star Trek, the next generation where he's totally standing up for the individual against the Q continuum. So he's a very confusing guy. And this book does not, it sheds some light. I'm really, I admittedly, I'm really bothered by him thinking that the Borg were okay. And that that's actually a direction that things would probably go. Uh, who the hell else thinks that that's okay? Because <laughs> you worry me a little bit, especially if you're thinking that, well, we have to subsume everything to even make the Borg a possibility. Right. Uh, so I recommend reading this book, bottom line, because you're going to find out things that I consider to be genuine, uh, uh, secrets about Gene Roddenberry. And if you're any kind of fan of star Trek, it does give you a window into, well, where's Gene, where was Gene's head at with what we were seeing on the screen? And maybe, you know, I'll admit this for a lot of people who actually think that Rick Berman and Brandon Braga and Jerry Taylor and fuck Ron Moore, uh, you know, and Michael Piller and whoever else, you know, that they were, they did a better job with Star Trek than what Gene did. This probably bolsters their way of thinking that this probably bolsters that opinion. Um, I still think Gene was an absolute visionary. I still think there were a lot of things that he was pointing to in his writing that I think are beautiful. I think that are redeeming for humanity overall. Um, but now there's parts of it that admittedly I'm a little troubled by, you know, um, like I, I do th Star Trek, the motion picture. It's technically, if you, if you take away all the rules of what can be your favorite movie, Technically, Star Trek, the motion picture is my favorite film of all time. Um, I'm a little bothered by the transhumanist message in it. And I was always tempered by the idea that Gene always seemed to implement things that, you know, spoke to that transhumanism was not the goal. Like the idea that the Borg was the villain. Uh, well, anyway, again, as long as people can coexist, I don't care. But. I, you know, I've always had a little bit of a problem with that, right? Because who controls the hardware that gets strapped onto you? The Borg Queen? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I know it's fiction, but this is nonfiction. The way he really thinks and the way he thinks what could be beneficial to humanity and how humanity will solve its problems and so on. And there's just, there's parts of it that I didn't think were okay. There was a point where he's now, I mean, I knew that Gene Roddenberry was, uh, was a policeman and that he was ex-military. But there's a point where he's like, he says, yeah, I would have been a great police chief. And he's like, sometimes I wonder if I should have done that instead. And, um, you know, I would have implemented all these things. And it's like, Gene, we don't, we don't need police, man. You know, I, I mean, you know, in the future, right. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, it's a very shocking book and it does color the way, uh, in fact, Ellen and I eventually are going to get to the point where we watch, we, uh, rewatch. Star Trek, the next generation. And I am going to be watching season one and two of that 
with a very different mindset this time around. And it's going to be interesting to report on that, to talk about that with you, the listeners, um, as that happens, because I mean, to know what Gene was at least partly really thinking at this time, Ooh, that's going to be interesting. Now, Yvonne Fern, she said that Gene told her things that he told that he said to her, you can tell people about, but you have to wait 20 years. Okay. And she basically says at the end of the book that if the book sells well, she'll write the other one in 20 years. Now, I don't know if she died or what, but as far as I know, that book never came out, that second book. And I am dying to know what the hell was supposed to come out, you know, 20 years later that Gene had said and that he would have been comfortable getting out there. Unless the Roddenberry family, you know, is so, in, and, and CBS and everybody else is so fucking invested in in Star Trek that they're terrified of what Gene Roddenberry said to Yvonne and won't let her publish the book. I mean, I could totally believe that that's happening. Um, but I want to know what are these really deep, what's this really deep shit that he told her that she wasn't allowed to print until 20 years later. I, I mean, I, I'd really love to hear what the hell that was. I mean, I might be terrified just like I was really bothered that, that he thought the Borg was okay, but Anyway, check out the book. I, I, I really, I mean, it's, it's certainly Gene had a contradictory mind. He was absolutely brilliant and you can't help but realize that from reading this book. Um, and also understand too, I mean, he was not in the best, uh, best of health, even when this venture of this book started out. Uh, but I just think there's, there's wonderful things to take away. Uh, and I have a lot of authors that I, get to look up now that he basically references, um, that I I've already been collecting the books for, um, that I'm intrigued to find out about, but yeah, I mean, I'll tell you this though, whether he liked the Borg or not, I, we need Gene Roddenberry in charge of Star Trek again, unfortunately, you know, he's long past, but anyway, so Gene Roddenberry, the last conversation, check the book out. Uh, if you, you know, maybe if you're in the telegram group, who knows, someone might make an electronic PDF version of it appear. I mean, that'd be kind of weird, but it could happen because anything can happen in that telegram group. And if you want to join that, of course, make sure that you uh, go to go, just go in the show notes and you'll find it. Also, all the show sponsors are there, including one where maybe you'd want to talk about this book and some of Gene's crazier ideas. Uh, that being free talk live, you go to freetalklive.com, the number 26 talk show in the United States. You want to jump on that. It's an open phone show. Freetalklive.com runs seven nights a week. I'm so honored to have them as a sponsor for Sovereign Tech, freetalklive.com. And of course, Sovereign Tech, well, it's always here for you, baby. Anyway, that'll be it for this episode. I will see all of you on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech. And Osiris One Production. Now go out there and make some trouble.